0: Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Whisperer in Darkness by H.P. Lovecraft 5. Then, apparently crossing my incoherent note and reaching me Saturday afternoon, September 8th, came that curiously different and calming letter neatly typed on a new machine—that strange letter of reassurance and invitation which must have marked so prodigious a transition in the whole nightmare drama of the Lonely Hills. Again, I will quote from memory, seeking for special reasons to preserve as much of the flavour of the style as I can. It was postmarked Bellows Falls, and the signature as well as the body of the letter was typed, as is frequent with beginners in typing. The text, though, was marvellously accurate for a tyro's work, and I concluded that Akeley must have used a machine at some previous period—perhaps in college. To say that the letter relieved me would be only fair, yet beneath my relief lay a substratum of uneasiness. If Akeley had been sane in his terror, was he now sane in his deliverance? And the sort of improved rapport mentioned, what was it? The entire thing implied such a diametrical reversal of Akeley's previous attitude, but here is the substance of the text, carefully transcribed from a memory in which I take some pride. Townsend, Vermont, Thursday, September 6th, 1928 My dear Wilmarth, it gives me great pleasure to be able to set you at rest regarding all the silly things I've been writing you. I say silly, although by that I mean my frightened attitude, rather than my descriptions of certain phenomena. Those phenomena are real and important enough. My mistake had been in establishing an anomalous attitude toward them. I think I mentioned that my strange visitors were beginning to communicate with me, and to attempt such communication. Last night, this exchange of speech became actual. In response to certain signals, I admitted to the house a messenger from those outside—a fellow human, let me hasten to say. He told me much that neither you nor I had even begun to guess, and shewed clearly how totally we had misjudged and misinterpreted the purpose of the Outer Ones in maintaining their secret colony on this planet. It seems that the evil legends about what they have offered to men, and what they wish in connection with the earth, are wholly the result of an ignorant misconception of allegorical speech—speech, of course moulded by cultural backgrounds and thought habits vastly different from anything we dream of. My own conjectures, I freely own, shot as widely past the mark as any of the guesses of illiterate farmers and savage Indians. What I had thought morbid and shameful and ignominious is in reality awesome and mind-expanding, and even glorious—my previous estimate being merely a phase of man's eternal tendency to hate and fear and shrink from the utterly different. Now, I regret the harm I have inflicted upon these alien and incredible beings in the course of our nightly skirmishes. If only I had consented to talk peacefully and reasonably with them in the first place! But they bear me no grudge, their emotions being organized very differently from ours. It is their misfortune to have had as their human agents in Vermont some very inferior specimens—the late Walter Brown, for example. He prejudiced me vastly against them. Actually, They have never knowingly harmed men, but have often been cruelly wronged and spied upon by our species. There is a whole secret cult of evil men A man of your mystical erudition will understand me, when I link them with Haster and the Yellow Sign—devoted to the purpose of tracking them down and injuring them on behalf of monstrous powers from other dimensions. It is against these aggressors, not against normal humanity, that the drastic precautions of the Outer Ones are directed. Incidentally, I learned that many of our lost letters were stolen not by the Outer Ones, but by the emissaries of this malign cult. All that the Outer Ones wish of man is peace and non-molestation, and an increasing intellectual rapport. This latter is absolutely necessary, now that our inventions and devices are expanding our knowledge and motions, and making it more and more impossible for the Outer Ones' necessary outposts to exist secretly on this planet— The alien beings desire to know mankind more fully, and to have a few of mankind's philosophic and scientific leaders know more about them. With such an exchange of knowledge, all perils will pass, and a satisfactory modus vivendi be established. The very idea of any attempt to enslave or degrade mankind is ridiculous. As a beginning of this improved rapport, the Outer Ones have naturally chosen me, whose knowledge of them is already so considerable as their primary interpreter on earth. Much was told me last night—facts of the most stupendous and vista-opening nature—and more will be subsequently communicated to me both orally and in writing. I shall not be called upon to make any trip outside just yet, though I shall probably wish to do so later on, employing special means and transcending everything which we have hitherto been accustomed to regard as human experience. My house will be besieged no longer everything has reverted to normal, and the dogs will have no further occupation. In place of terror, I have been given a rich boon of knowledge and intellectual adventure which few other mortals have ever shared. The outer beings are perhaps the most marvellous organic things in or beyond all space and time, members of a cosmos-wide race of which all other life forms are merely degenerate variants. They are more vegetable than animal if these terms can be applied to the sort of matter composing them, and have a somewhat fungoid structure, though the presence of a chlorophyll-like substance and a very singular nutritive system differentiate them altogether from true cormophytic fungi. Indeed, the type is composed of a form of matter totally alien to our part of space, with electrons having a wholly different vibration rate. That is why the beings cannot be photographed on the ordinary camera films and plates of our known universe, even though our eyes can see them. With proper knowledge, however, any good chemist could make a photographic emulsion which would record their images. The genus is unique in its ability to traverse the heatless and airless interstellar void in full corporeal form, and some of its variants cannot do this without mechanical aid or curious surgical transpositions. Only a few species have the ether resisting wings characteristic of the Vermont variety those inhabiting certain remote peaks in the old world, were brought in other ways. Their external resemblance to animal life, and to the sort of structure we understand as material, is a matter of parallel evolution rather than of close kinship. Their brain capacity exceeds that of any other surviving life form, although the winged types of our hill country are by no means the most highly developed. Telepathy is their usual means of discourse, though they have rudimentary vocal organs which— after a slight operation—for surgery is an incredibly expert and everyday thing among them—can roughly duplicate the speech of such types of organism as still use speech. Their main immediate abode is a still undiscovered and almost lightless planet at the very edge of our solar system, beyond Neptune, and the ninth in distance from the Sun. It is, as we have inferred, the object mystically hinted at as Yagoth in certain ancient and forbidden writings— and it will soon be the scene of a strange focusing of thought upon our world, in an effort to facilitate mental rapport. I would not be surprised if astronomers became sufficiently sensitive to these thought-currents to discover Yogoth when the Outer Ones wish them to do so. But Yagoth, of course, is only the stepping-stone. The main body of the beings inhabits strangely organized abysses wholly beyond the utmost reach of any human imagination. The space-time globule which we recognize as the totality of all cosmic entity is only an atom in the genuine infinity which is theirs, and as much of this infinity as any human brain can hold is eventually to be opened up to me, as it has been to not more than fifty other men since the human race has existed. You will probably call this raving at first, Wilmoth, but in time you will appreciate the titanic opportunity I have stumbled upon." I want you to share as much of it as is possible, and to that end must tell you thousands of things that won't go on paper. In the past, I have warned you not to come to see me. Now that all is safe, I take pleasure in rescinding that warning, and inviting you. Can't you make a trip up here before your college term opens? It would be marvellously delightful, if you could. Bring along the phonograph record, and all my letters to you as consultative data. We shall need them in piecing together the whole tremendous story." You might bring the Kodak prints, too, since I seem to have mislaid the negatives of my own prints in all this recent excitement. But what a wealth of facts I have to add to all this groping and tentative material, and what a stupendous device I have to supplement my additions! Don't hesitate—I am free from espionage now, and you will not meet anything unnatural or disturbing. Just come along and let my car meet you at the Brattlebro station— prepare to stay as long as you can, and expect many an evening of discussion of things, beyond all human conjecture. Don't tell anyone about it, of course, for this matter must not get to the promiscuous public. The train service to Brattleboro is not bad. You can get a timetable in Boston, take the B&M to Greenfield, and then change for the brief remainder of the way. I suggest you're taking the convenient 4.10pm standard from Boston. This gets into Greenfield at 7.35— and at 9.19, a train leaves there which reaches Brattleboro at 10.01, that is weekdays. Let me know the date, and I'll have my car on hand at the station. Pardon this typed letter, but my handwriting has grown shaky of late, as you know, and I don't feel equal to long stretches of script. I got this new Corona in Brattleboro yesterday. It seems to work very well. Awaiting word, and hoping to see you shortly with the phonograph record, and all my letters, and the Kodak prints. I am— Yours in anticipation, Henry W. Aikley To Albert N. Wilmarth, Esq., Miskatonic University, Arkham, Massachusetts The complexity of my emotions upon reading, re-reading, and pondering over this strange and unlooked-for letter is past adequate description. I have said that I was at once relieved and made uneasy, but this expresses only crudely the overtones of diverse and largely subconscious feelings which comprised both the relief and the uneasiness. To begin with, the thing was so antipodally at variance with the whole chain of horrors preceding it. The change of mood from stark terror to cool complacency and even exaltation was so unheralded, lightning-like, and complete. I could scarcely believe that a single day could so alter the psychological perspective of one who had written that final frenzied bulletin of Wednesday, no matter what relieving disclosures that day might have brought— At certain moments, a sense of conflicting unrealities made me wonder whether this whole distantly reported drama of fantastic forces were not a kind of half-illusory dream created largely within my own mind. Then I thought of the phonograph record, and gave way to still greater bewilderment. The letter seemed so unlike anything which could have been expected. As I analysed my impression, I saw that it consisted of two distinct phases. First, Granting that Akeley had been sane before, and was still sane, the indicated change in the situation itself was so swift and unthinkable, and secondly, the change in Akeley's own manner, attitude, and language, was so vastly beyond the normal, or the predictable. The man's whole personality seemed to have undergone an insidious mutation—a mutation so deep that one could scarcely reconcile his two aspects with a supposition that both represented equal sanity— Word-choice, spelling—all was subtly different, and with my academic sensitiveness to prose style, I could trace profound divergences in his commonest reactions and rhythm responses. Certainly, the emotional cataclysm or revelation which could produce so radical an overturn must be an extreme one indeed. Yet, in another way, the letter seemed quite characteristic of Akeley—the same old passion for infinity, the same old scholarly inquisitiveness I could not a moment, or more than a moment, credit the idea of spuriousness or malign substitution. Did not the invitation, the willingness to have me test the truth of the letter in person, prove its genuineness? I did not retire Saturday night, but sat up thinking of the shadows and marvels behind the letter I had received. My mind, aching from the quick succession of monstrous conceptions it had been forced to confront during the last four months— worked upon this startling new material in a cycle of doubt and acceptance, which repeated most of the steps experienced in facing the earlier wonders, till long before dawn a burning interest and curiosity had begun to replace the original storm of perplexity and uneasiness. Mad or sane, metamorphosed or merely relieved, the chances were that Akeley had actually encountered some stupendous change of perspective in his hazardous research— some change at once diminishing his danger, real or fancied, and opening dizzy new vistas of cosmic and superhuman knowledge. My own zeal for the unknown flared up to meet his, and I felt myself touched by the contagion of the morbid barrier-breaking. To shake off the maddening and wearying limitations of time and space and natural law, to be linked with the vast outside, to come close to the knighted and abysmal secrets of the infinite and the ultimate— Surely such a thing was worth the risk of one's life, soul, and sanity—and Akeley had said there was no longer any peril. he had invited me to visit him, instead of warning me away as before. I tingled at the thought of what he might now have to tell me. There was an almost paralysing fascination in the thought of sitting in that lonely and lately beleaguered farmhouse with a man who had talked with actual emissaries from outer space, sitting there with the terrible record and the pile of letters in which Akeley had summarized his earlier conclusions. So, late Sunday morning, I telegraphed Akeley that I would meet him in Brattleboro on the following Wednesday, September 12th, if that date were convenient for him. In only one respect did I depart from his suggestions, and that concerned the choice of a train. Frankly, I did not feel like arriving in that haunted Vermont region late at night— so instead of accepting the train he chose, I telephoned the station and devised another arrangement. By rising early, and taking the 8.07 a.m. standard into Boston, I could catch the 9.25 for Greenfield, arriving there at 12.22 noon. This connected exactly with a train reaching Brattleboro at 1.08 p.m., a much more comfortable hour than 10.01 for meeting Gately and riding with him into the close-packed, secret guarding hills." I mentioned this choice in my telegram, and was glad to learn in the reply which came toward evening that it had met with my prospective host's endorsement. His wire ran thus. Arrangement satisfactory. We'll meet 108 train Wednesday. Don't forget record and letters and prints. Keep destination quiet. Expect great revelations. Akeley. Receipt of this message, in direct response to one sent to Akeley, unnecessarily delivered to his house from the Townsend Station, either by official messenger, or by a restored telephone service, removed any lingering subconscious doubts I may have had, about the authorship of the perplexing letter. My relief was marked—indeed, it was greater than I could account for at that time, since all such doubts had been rather deeply buried—but I slept soundly and long that night, and was eagerly busy with preparations during the ensuing two days." 6. On Wednesday I started as agreed, taking with me a valise full of simple necessities and scientific data, including the hideous phonograph record, the Kodak prints, and the entire file of Akeley's correspondence. As requested, I had told no one where I was going, for I could see that the matter demanded utmost privacy, even allowing for its most favourable turns the thought of actual mental contact with alien outside entities was stupefying enough to my trained and somewhat prepared mind, and this being so, what might one think of its effect on the vast masses of uninformed laymen? I do not know whether dread or adventurous expectancy was uppermost in me as I changed trains in Boston, and began the long westward run out of familiar regions into those I knew less thoroughly—Waltham, Concord, Ayer, Fitchburg, Gardner, Athol. My train reached Greenfield seven minutes late, but the northbound connecting express had been held. Transferring in haste, I felt a curious breathlessness, as the cars rumbled on through the early afternoon sunlight, into territories I had always read of, but had never before visited. I knew I was entering an altogether older-fashioned and more primitive New England than the mechanized, urbanized coastal and southern areas where all my life had been spent—an unspoiled, ancestral New England, without the foreigners and factory smoke—billboards and concrete roads—of the sections which modernity has touched. There would be odd survivals of that continuous native life whose deep roots make it the one authentic outgrowth of the landscape—the continuous native life which keeps alive strange ancient memories and fertilizes the soil for shadowy, marvellous, and seldom-mentioned beliefs. Now and then, I saw the blue Connecticut River gleaming in the sun, and after leaving Northfield, we crossed it. Ahead loomed green and cryptical hills, and when the conductor came around, I learned that I was at last in Vermont. He told me to set my watch back an hour, since the northern hill country will have no dealings with newfangled daylight time schemes— As I did so, it seemed to me that I was likewise turning the calendar back a century. The train kept close to the river, and across in New Hampshire I could see the approaching slope of steep Wantasticet, about which singular old legends cluster. Then streets appeared on my left, and a green island shooed in the stream on my right. People rose and filed to the door, and I followed them. The car stopped, and I alighted beneath the long train-shed of the Brattleboro Station. Looking over the line of waiting motors, I hesitated a moment to see which one might turn out to be the Akeley Ford, but my identity was divined before I could take the initiative. And yet, it was clearly not Akeley himself who advanced to meet me with an outstretched hand and a mellowly phrased query as to whether I was indeed Mr. Albert N. Wilmarth of Arkham. This man bore no resemblance to the bearded, grizzled Akeley of the snapshot, but was a younger and more urban person— fashionably dressed, and wearing only a small, dark moustache. His cultivated voice held an odd and almost disturbing hint of vague familiarity, though I could not definitely place it in my memory. As I surveyed him, I heard him explaining that he was a friend of my prospective hosts, who had come down from Townsend in his stead. Akeley, he declared, had suffered a sudden attack of some asthmatic trouble, and did not feel equal to making a trip in the outdoor air— it was not serious, however, and there was to be no change in plans regarding my visit. I could not make out just how much this Mr. Noyes, as he announced himself, knew of Akeley's researches and discoveries, though it seemed to me that his casual manner stamped him as a comparative outsider. Remembering what a hermit Akeley had been, I was a trifle surprised at the ready availability of such a friend, but did not let my puzzlement deter me from entering the motor, to which he gestured me. It was not the small, ancient car I had expected from Akeley's descriptions, but a large and immaculate specimen of recent pattern—apparently Noise's own—and bearing Massachusetts license plates with the amusing sacred codfish device of that year. My guide, I concluded, must be a summer transient in the Townsend region. Noise climbed into the car beside me, and started it at once. I was glad that he did not overflow with conversation. Some peculiar atmospheric tensity made me feel disinclined to talk. The town seemed very attractive in the afternoon sunlight as we swept up an incline and turned to the right into the main street. It drowsed like the older New England cities, which one remembers from boyhood, and something in the collocation of roofs and steeples and chimneys and brick walls formed contours touching deep vile strings of ancestral emotion. I could tell that I was at the gateway of a region half bewitched through the piling up of unbroken time accumulations—a region where old, strange things have had a chance to grow and linger, because they have never been stirred up. As we passed out of Brattleboro, my sense of constraint and foreboding increased, for a vague quality in the hill-crowded countryside with its towering, threatening, close-pressing green and granite slopes hinted at obscure secrets and immemorial survivals which might or might not be hostile to mankind. For a time, our course followed a broad, shallow river, which flowed down from unknown hills in the north, and I shivered when my companion told me it was the West River. It was in this stream, I recalled from newspaper items, that one of the morbid, crab-like beings had been seen floating after the floods. Gradually, the country around us grew wilder and more deserted. Archaic, covered bridges lingered fearsomely out of the past in pockets of the hills, and the half-abandoned railway track, paralleling the river, seemed to exhale a nebulously visible air of desolation. There were awesome sweeps of vivid valley, where great cliffs rose, New England's virgin granite shewing grey and austere, through the verdure that scaled the crests. There were gorges where untamed streams leaped, bearing down toward the river the unimagined secrets of a thousand pathless peaks. Branching away now and then were narrow, half-concealed roads that bored their way through solid, luxuriant masses of forest among whose primal trees whole armies of elemental spirits might well lurk. As I saw these, I thought of how Akeley had been molested by unseen agencies on his drives along this very route, and did not wonder that such things could be— The quaint, sightly village of Newfane, reached in less than an hour, was our last link with that world which man can definitely call his own by virtue of conquest and complete occupancy. After that, we cast off all allegiance to immediate, tangible, and time-touched things, and entered a fantastic world of hushed unreality, in which the narrow, ribbon-like road rose and fell, and curved, with an almost sentient and purposeful caprice— amidst the tenantless green peaks and half-deserted valleys. Except for the sound of the motor, and the faint stir of the few lonely farms we passed at infrequent intervals, the only thing that reached my ears was the gurgling insidious trickle of strange waters from numberless hidden fountains in the shadowy woods. The nearness and intimacy of the dwarfed, domed hills now became veritably breathtaking. Their steepness and abruptness were even greater than I had imagined from hearsay, and suggested nothing in common with the prosaic, objective world we know. The dense, unvisited woods on those inaccessible slopes seemed to harbour alien and incredible things, and I felt that the very outline of the hills themselves held some strange and eon-forgotten meaning, as if they were vast hieroglyphs left by a rumoured Titan race— whose glories live only in rare, deep dreams. All the legends of the past, and all the stupefying imputations of Henry Akeley's letters and exhibits, welled up in my memory to heighten the atmosphere of tension and growing menace. The purpose of my visit, and the frightful abnormalities it postulated, struck me all at once, with a chill sensation that nearly overbalanced my ardour for strange delvings. My guide must have noticed my disturbed attitude, for as the road grew wilder and more irregular, and our motion slower and more jolting, his occasional pleasant comments expanded into a steadier flow of discourse. He spoke of the beauty and weirdness of the country, and revealed some acquaintance with the folklore studies of my prospective host. From his polite questions, it was obvious that he knew I had come for a scientific purpose— and that I was bringing data of some importance, but he gave no sign of appreciating the depth and awfulness of the knowledge which Akeley had finally reached. His manner was so cheerful, normal, and urbane, that his remarks ought to have calmed and reassured me, but, oddly enough, I felt only the more disturbed as we bumped and veered onward into the unknown wilderness of hills and woods. At times it seemed as if he were pumping me to see what I knew of the monstrous secrets of the place, and with every fresh utterance that vague, teasing, baffling familiarity in his voice increased. It was not an ordinary or healthy familiarity, despite the thoroughly wholesome and cultivated nature of the voice. I somehow linked it with forgotten nightmares, and felt that I might go mad if I recognised it. If any good excuse had existed, I think I would have turned back from my visit— as it was. I could not well do so, and it occurred to me that a cool, scientific conversation with Akeley himself, after my arrival, would help greatly to pull me together. Besides, there was a strangely calming element of cosmic beauty in the hypnotic landscape through which we climbed and plunged fantastically. Time had lost itself in the labyrinths behind, and around us stretched only the flowering waves of fairy and the recaptured loveliness of vanished centuries—the hoary groves, the untainted pastures edged with gay autumnal blossoms—and at vast intervals, the small brown farmsteads nestling amidst huge trees beneath vertical precipices of fragrant briar and meadow-grass. Even the sunlight assumed a supernal glamour, as if some special atmosphere or exhalation mantled the whole region." I had seen nothing like it before, save in the magic vistas that sometimes form the backgrounds of Italian primitives. Sodomer and Leonardo conceived such expanses, but only in the distance, and through the vaultings of Renaissance arcades. We were now burrowing bodily through the midst of the picture, and I seemed to find in its necromancy a thing I had innately known or inherited, and for which I had always been vainly searching. Suddenly. After rounding an obtuse angle at the top of a sharp ascent, the car came to a standstill. On my left, across a well-kept lawn which stretched to the road and flaunted a border of whitewashed stones, rose a white, two-and-a-half-storey house of unusual size and elegance for the region, with the congeries of contiguous or arcade-linked barns, sheds, and windmill behind to the right. I recognised it at once from the snapshot I had received, and was not surprised to see the name of Henry Akeley on the galvanized iron mailbox near the road. For some distance back of the house, a level stretch of marshy and sparsely wooded land extended, beyond which soared a steep, thickly forested hillside, ending in a jagged, leafy crest. This latter, I knew, was the summit of Dark Mountain, halfway up which we must have climbed already. Alighting from the car and taking my valise, Noise asked me to wait, while he went in, and notified Akeley of my advent. He himself, he added, had important business elsewhere, and could not stop for more than a moment. As he briskly walked up the path to the house, I climbed out of the car myself, wishing to stretch my legs a little, before settling down to a sedentary conversation. My feeling of nervousness and tension had risen to a maximum again— now that I was on the actual scene of the morbid beleaguering described so hauntingly in Akeley's letters, and I honestly dreaded the coming discussions which were to link me with such alien and forbidden worlds. Close contact with the utterly bizarre is often more terrifying than inspiring, and it did not cheer me to think that this very bit of dusty road was the place where those monstrous tracks and that fetid green ichor— had been found after moonless nights of fear and death. Idly, I noticed that none of Akeley's dogs seemed to be about. Had he sold them all, as soon as the Outer Ones made peace with him? Try as I might, I could not have the same confidence in the depth and sincerity of that peace which appeared in Akeley's final and queerly different letter. After all, he was a man of much simplicity, and with little worldly experience. Was there not, perhaps, some deep and sinister undercurrent beneath the surface of the new Alliance?" Led by my thoughts, my eyes turned downward to the powdery road-surface which had held such hideous testimonies. The last few days had been dry, and tracks of all sorts cluttered the rutted, irregular highway, despite the unfrequented nature of the district. With a vague curiosity, I began to trace the outline of some of the heterogeneous impressions trying meanwhile to curb the flights of macabre fancy which the place and its memories suggested. There was something menacing and uncomfortable in the funereal stillness, in the muffled, subtle trickle of distant brooks, and in the crowding green peaks and black wooded precipices that choked the narrow horizon. And then an image shot into my consciousness, which made those vague menaces and flights of fancy seem mild and insignificant indeed. I have said that I was scanning the miscellaneous prints in the road with a kind of idle curiosity, but all at once that curiosity was shockingly snuffed out by a sudden and paralyzing gust of active terror. For though the dust-tracks were in general confused and overlapping, and unlikely to arrest any casual gaze, my restless vision had caught certain details near the spot where the path to the house joined the highway and had recognized beyond doubt or hope the frightful significance of those details. It was not for nothing, alas, that I had pored for hours over the Kodak views of the Outer One's claw-prints which Akeley had sent. Too well did I know the marks of those loathsome nippers, and that hint of ambiguous direction which stamped the horrors as no creatures of this planet. No chance had been left me for merciful mistake, here, indeed— in objective form before my own eyes, and surely made not many hours ago, were at least three marks which stood out blasphemously among the surprising plethora of blurred footprints leading to and from the Akeley farmhouse. They were the hellish tracks of the living fungi from Yaguth. I pulled myself together in time to stifle a scream. After all, what more was there than I might have expected, assuming that I had really believed Akeley's letters? he had spoken of making peace with the things. Why, then, was it strange that some of them had visited his house? But the terror was stronger than the reassurance. Could any man be expected to look unmoved for the first time upon the claw marks of animate beings from outer depths of space? Just then, I saw noise emerge from the door, and approach with a brisk step. I must, I reflected, keep command of myself— for the chances were this genial friend knew nothing of Akeley's profoundest and most stupendous probings into the forbidden. Akeley, noise-hastened to inform me, was glad and ready to see me, although his sudden attack of asthma would prevent him from being a very competent host for a day or two. These spells hit him hard when they came, and were always accompanied by a debilitating fever and general weakness. He never was good for much while they lasted—had to talk in a whisper— and was very clumsy and feeble in getting about. His feet and ankles swelled too, so that he had to bandage them like a gouty old beef-eater. Today he was in rather bad shape, so that I would have to attend very largely to my own needs, but he was none the less eager for conversation. I would find him in the study at the left of the front hall, the room where the blinds were shut. He had to keep the sunlight out when he was ill, for his eyes were very sensitive— as Noise bade me adieu and rode off northward in his car, I began to walk slowly toward the house. The door had been left ajar for me, but, before approaching and entering, I cast a searching glance around the whole place, trying to decide what had struck me as so intangibly queer about it. The barns and sheds looked trimly prosaic enough, and I noticed Akeley's battered ford in its capacious, unguarded shelter. Then the secret of the queerness reached me— It was the total silence. Ordinarily a farm is at least moderately murmurous from its various kinds of livestock, but here all signs of life were missing. What of the hens and the hogs? The cows, of which Akeley had said he possessed several, might conceivably be out to pasture, and the dogs might possibly have been sold, but the absence of any trace of cackling or grunting was truly singular. I did not pause long on the path but resolutely entered the open house door and closed it behind me. It had cost me a distinct psychological effort to do so, and now that I was shut inside, I had a momentary longing for precipitate retreat. Not that the place was in the least sinister in visual suggestion. On the contrary, I thought the graceful late colonial hallway very tasteful and wholesome, and admired the evident breeding of the man who had furnished it. What made me wish to flee was something very attenuated and indefinable. Perhaps it was a certain odd odour which I thought I noticed, though I well knew how common musty odours are in even the best of ancient farmhouses."